This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial grade AI. Hallo liebe Zuhörerinnen und Zuhörer, willkommen zur Podcast Folge Nummer 160 des Podcastes KI in der Industrie. And at this point we are switching languages and I'm welcoming in Munich my co-host Peter Sieberg, good morning. Robert, how are you doing? Uh, I'm fine, Peter. How was your vacation? Oh, it was great. I'll, I'll come to it in more detail in a moment. But uh, yeah, I, I tried, I, I did uh, deal with uh, AI kind of in the background. You know, as you know, I never really have vacation. You know, the notebook is always there. The access to the internet is always there. Uh, but I did try to stay away from AI in industry. So, you know, which is our job, the AI in industry podcast. So that's what I didn't deal with. How was your holiday? Oh, it was fine. We were in the Alps and uh, some hiking, so mm -hmm. uh, no AI uh, in the Alps. <laughs> um, but we switched to languages because we want to go international. Why we right. want to go international, Peter? Why do we want to go international? Because, you know, um, after how long have we been doing this now? Three years? Um, Three years, yeah. KI in the Industry, AI Industry Podcast. Uh, we've been very successful, very happy. Um, but we do believe that there is a potential, you know, for, you know, attracting international listeners that are not capable of understanding the German language. So I think we'll, we'll need to look into it because at the same time as I'm saying this, uh, I have been dealing with this very idea of, you know, as an example, you know, YouTube, whatever video you're looking at, you can choose these days any language that, you know, goes um, on the fly as a subtitle. So at the same time, uh, artificial intelligence provides us with the opportunity to, to even listen, you know, to people in other languages. So let's see, we're going to try this out and we hope to attract uh, listeners from a wider global community. And I think our listeners in Brazil will be very, very happy to now to have an English version because they always translated our German uh, episodes into English. So uh, greetings to Brazil and to our listeners there. Before we start with our news part, we have to announce that we have a new podcast partner and we say thank you to the guys from Siemens. Thank you very much to be our podcast partner. Welcome, Siemens. Looking Welcome. forward to be working with you. So, Peter, let's start with the, with the news part. What do you bring back with you? Yeah, exactly. So, as I, as I suggested, you mean um, the digital connection is always there. Uh, doesn't matter where you are. But it did try to stay away a little bit from uh, AI and industry. So, What what came to my brain, so to say, when I was thinking of, oh, what has been happening in the last couple of weeks, um, is that the global community and also myself has become more and more impressed with DALI. DALI, mm -hmm. the open AI, a neural network-based 
image creator for text we captions. We will hear more in with Yusuf Murat in the in the oh in actually the oh that's yeah. amazing that's amazing then I, I wasn't aware of that anymore. Yeah. Uh, you're referring to the podcast right that we have actually recorded uh, now uh, what four five six weeks ago yeah. I guess so uh, so this Dali was uh, introduced over a year ago yes it's not new that's not the point uh, it was obviously named after the famous realistic Spanish uh, painter Salvador Dali. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, mm -hmm. um, I do go every now and then into Spain and I cross, I forgot the name of the city, but I always see uh, on the motorway there's the sign of the, of the uh, Salvador Dali Museum. So mm -hmm. uh, let me explain why I'm mentioning this in our uh, AI and Industry podcast. Well-known, I, I guess almost famous example, images by OpenAI generated by, by Dali are things like the captions, armchair in the shape of an avocado. Mm -hmm. Not sure you've seen it. Maybe one of our listeners has. Or a painting of a fox sitting in a field at sunrise in the style of Claude Monet. So these are two typical pictures that I've seen so many times, and that's why I've, uh, I mention it now here as well. And they show how this DALI, uh, meanwhile, it's also available in a DALI 2, that's a high-resolution version. So on one hand, helps people express themselves visually, you know, mm -hmm. those of us that mm -hmm. have not had that capability. And on the other hand, it helps us, that's you and I, and our listeners, those people interested in AI, helps us understand how AI systems uh, see the world. Now, for me, it's obvious that Uh, Dali is going to um, to do to the graphic design world what Google and Deeple and all the other you know neural network based translation applications have already done to the world of translators. You know, translators, mm -hmm. I think, except for niche areas, they almost must you know use AI based translation tools to be competitive. And what is a lot more important, I guess, is that consumers start using the tools themselves to translate. You know, what that means to the world of translators, we can imagine. So, and I believe that mm, something similar is going to happen with tools like this in our world. So if we look at another example of open AI, it says a living room with two white armchairs and a painting of the Colosseum. That's mm -hmm. another one I've seen a couple of times. This sounds like, you know, architectural design already, right? So, and if that's one step outside of the graphic design, then, you know, we are free to have our minds go into any kind of area like industrial design. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you remember the talk that I had with um, Jan Kautnik, Jan yes. from Nasons. Was that two, three years ago already? Yeah, two years ago, yep. You remember at what uh, site they were exhibiting at that time? At Festo, I think, yeah. Oh, at Festo, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Perfect. I knew you were, you knew it. So, and I recall that he was standing there and he was explaining reinforcement learning. Yep. And he suggested how reinforcement learning would soon take over designing production lines. You know, he, he turned around and said, okay, this production line there from Festo uh, yep. in the near future is going to be designed by reinforcement learning. Now, so here I come to my close and I say, for me, it's very easy imagining an application like DALI and then combined with reinforcement learning 
to become a real powerful tool in the hands of the production line design. And the production line design is going to say something like, you know, produce a production line with the outcome of, you know, X, Y, Z, a number of whatever, you know, uh, things that I want to have produced. Yeah. Do you know a stable diffusion? Diffusion, because this is an, this is an open source solution. It's nearly the same as Dali, I think. It's sta no, stable diffusion. Is that the word of it? Stable diffusion. Stable diffusion. Yeah, it, I think it's the first technology in this area which is open source. So, if uh, for our listeners, you can you can find it. Stable diffusion. You can uh, put it in the internet on Google, and you will find it. That's exactly what I'm going to do as well then, because yep. I understand that uh, Dali today is by invitation only. So I'm, I have been looking forward to be able to use it soon for myself. And I'm very much uh, interested in, you know, listeners, if, if you have had the opportunity or if you know a way uh, to be able to use it, or as you said, you know, as an alternative, if the same, of course, you know, open AI is not the only one. Uh, looking into this technology or if there's another one that you just mentioned i'm looking forward to be uh, to be using it and seeing what we um you know as consumers uh, in maybe our, let's say our free time those of us that have not been expressing themselves in this way visually but certainly at the same time also for our near future work I, I brought an article from the New York Times, mm -hmm. um, and, and the article is, uh, we need to talk about how good AI is getting, and DALI is one example of this. And this report is all, it's also about DALI, which fits perfectly in, in our main part, I think, with Yusuf Murat from Monolith AI in the UK, because we talked about design and wind tunnel testing, and we talked also about DALI, but more about that later. I will put the links in the show notes. Very good. And interesting how you now mention an article by the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, first time we go, uh, we go English. Um, <laughs> and, and I made the reference to what's going to happen to, let's say, uh, you know, production design. And I related it to translation because there was this famous article in the New York Times, and I believe, is it really already six years ago? I, I believe it was 2016, I believe it's six years ago. And there was this famous article that I received from a friend uh, from Hawkon at that time, and it was about... Um, I think it was about a, a Japanese uh, professor, um, and he had been looking at translations. And overnight, the quality of translations had, you know, changed like dramatically. And he was asking his readers to to decide which one was his personal version translation, and which one I think by that time. And at that time, overnight, Google had changed from mm -hmm. you know rules based uh, translation to probability-based, neural networks-based design. So interesting how now there's another article that may be on the same topic of you know, changing graphic design into neural network-based design um, is going to have a similar um, output. Do you have anything else in the in the news part? No, not for me. Uh, it was uh, just um, great as a as a start for today. I think I have I have one more thing. More, okay. I have something else from from science, maybe for our science community. A new self supervised representation learning SSL under ImageNet it outperformed 
other SSLs only using less than 30% training epochs. So this is really surprising, and I think that's a huge number. And I will put this, um, this paper also in the show notes. There you can find it. So it's uh, spot on to the, um, at least we here, both based in, in Germany, uh, almost daily, hourly discussions about about the climate, um, about the, the non-availability, let's put it that way, of, of energy, of gas, and how we need to change. And more and more, you do see, you do read about how uh, artificial intelligence, I guess, you know, digital equipment in general. So it's um, whatever we do, you know, going onto the internet. And in the end, of course, it's the, the, the hyperscale cloud providers uh, of which we know, you know, they will put in, you know, typically here in Europe, but also, I guess, in other parts of the world, in the northern hemisphere where uh, they they don't need to cool as much, but at the same time, they will make that area warmer. Uh, Long-term <laughs> uh, long cut short, uh, that means that, you know, instead of maybe having whatever, a couple of days, a couple of hours of training, uh, if we can reduce that, if I heard correctly by by uh, by two thirds and down to a third that's of course very important i think it's a general approach that we've been looking at from the very beginning uh, i recall that we had we, we looked into you know big data and big data for me was always like a bit of a you know, marketing hype of maybe the same hypercloud providers was always about, you know, give me all your data and I tell you what problem you have kind of rather than, you know, try to deal with small data, you know, as I've been telling in the past, you know, reduce mm -hmm. your data to as small as you can in, with, with keeping the representative features in the data. And that's still also closer to, and that's again, reinforcement learning, you know, the same way that, you know, um, newly born children, children that we raise, the way that they learn. And after they have seen mommy, daddy two or three or four times, rather than four million times you know, in the <laughs> training, they will say, you know, daddy, mommy, or at least they will start um, smiling at you. I wrote an article about uh, this topic, climate change and AI, together mm. with the guys from Applied AI from Munich. I will put it also in the show notes, but it's a German version from Tagesspiegel background. So uh, if you're interested in this article about AI and uh, uh, climate change, you will find it in the show notes. Do you have anything else? Otherwise, we will go into the wind tunnel with Yusuf from Monol no, AI. Let's, let's listen to Yusuf. What do he has to tell us? Uh, thank you very much, Peter, for uh, having you here in the show. And now let's start with Yusuf Murat from Monolith AI. Looking forward to talk to you next week again, Robert. Welcome to our podcast, Yusuf Murat. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. What is your position at Monolith? What is Monolith doing? Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm Yusuf. I'm product marketing engineer at Monolith. And what we're actually doing is we use engineering data apply AI on it, and then extract value from it and make sure engineers learn from their test data. Sounds great. So you just mentioned where you're based. So you just said you live in the Netherlands or? I live in the Netherlands, correct, but our headquarters is in London. Oh, right. And and you have a representation here in the German market as well or? Not, not yet. No, no, no. So the headquarters is in London, but we are spread all over the world. So we have colleagues in America, obviously in the UK, then also in Germany. So tell us a bit more. You say you want to make sure that your customers are going to test less. And how do you 
do it really different from you know others in the market you know let's i don't know if there's like companies like simulink or what is your different way of doing things mm -hmm. very interesting question so the punchline as you have alluded to is test less learn more so what we're actually doing is because there is this problem of testing too much testing very expensively and it's very repetitive time consuming and sometimes a bit tedious and engineers are very smart Maybe they love to go to the wind tunnel, but the thing is we want to make sure that they spend less time in the wind tunnel and save the company some money, but then use their creativity and their ingenuity to actually develop pr better products with their creativity. So we help them to actually test less. That was the first part. And then learn more is they use AI methods. So they use our platform, Monolith, import their data and actually then extract knowledge from that data that they have collected over time. So that can be historic engineering data, can be test data, crash test data, as we have done with BMW recently. So yeah, a lot of value that we can give. So it's an artificial testing? No, it's actually what we're doing is we use real-world test data, for example, the crash test, as I've alluded to or mentioned, and also the wind tunnel testing. We take that data, and if you're lucky, you have a data lake somewhere, stored your data somewhere. We take the data, learn from it, and then what we ultimately do is, as I've already said, the punchline, test less and learn more. How you learn? With what kind of AI method do you use there? Yeah, so usually we have a lot of different modules on our platform. So it usually starts with very like very simple, exploring the data. So using something like regression models, maybe go for a classification task. Um, but usually it starts with a regression model. And then you can go up to, I don't know, if you're very fancy and want to do a little bit more um, on the design aspect, you can go up to uh, autoencoders if you want. So when, it, when we talk about data formats, it's structured unstructured data time series data usually very good if you have it in a csv format if not there are tools on the platform where you can kind of pre-process your data because that as we all know is the most tedious and most dirty part of an ai um, researcher so do you have an example of where your your claim to fame has actually worked in the real life situation oh definitely good question and i have a ton of examples i don't want to make it too long but the most famous customers are mercedes-benz bmw honeywell so we're not only working in the engineering automotive sector but also in the aerospace sector and also the industrial sectors when we talk about custody transfer so custody transfer is something where you transport goods from a to b such as oil and gas so honeywell for example they have used cfd in the past and to the listeners who don't know what CFD is. That's an engineering simulation method, uh, which is computational fluid dynamics. So how can we mimic the real world using simulation methods for engineers? The structural mechanics um, counterpart would be finite element method, so finite element analysis. So how can you use less simulation because it's more error prone to what you're actually measuring in the real world. You have your engineer sitting in front of your computer who is also error-prone because it's a human, makes mistakes. Then you also have your CAD model that you simplify, another error. You have the numerics playing into the simulation, also an error. And also the meshing, obviously, because you have to mesh fine enough. It's always this, this very tedious iteration loop. And what we have seen is actually where the big value comes from. And we work with simulation. We have worked with Siemens on doing some simulation uh, collaboration and worked on STAR-CCM combustion modeling prediction. And what we have seen is the biggest value is actually using test data from engineers because they have measured it in the real world and that's actually the big benefit because it comes from the real world you're extracting from what you have measured in the real world around you so this is the big benefit so i've heard if we um if we stay with car brands like you know it doesn't matter if it's your customer bmw mercedes etc i've heard that they, they may have like test cars in the value of you know up to a billion or whatever i mean we here based in munich we see these cars like we see them from the mw people living in stuttgart for example they will i'm sure they see them from mercedes with all the nice stripes on them like the zebras and it's very easy to understand that instead of them having I have no idea you know five thousand ten thousand cars and 
probably all over the world because they need to be run in very difficult, cold and hot and everywhere. It's very easy f to understand why you want to do that. But why is it now possible <laughs> with your solution? Why was it not possible? In Because that was what simulation was always all about, you know, trying to simulate and, and look into the future as good as we can. But then how you can assure it. Excellent point. So we are also very lucky that we live in an age where AI has scaled tremendously fast. So we are not in an AI winter anymore, how I would actually <laughs> define it. But uh, we have the capabilities, we have GPUs, we have TPUs and all, all this kind of things. And I think the BMW engineers, all engineers are very, very smart. So if they would, could have done it, they would have done it. And what our solution offers is it's on the cloud. So basically... It's also for domain experts. So an engineer with the domain expertise goes, logs into our platform, imports the data, uses, applies some AI models to it, extracts the value and can actually post-process and actually look at some nice plots on how the data actually looks like because it's very complicated. It's what we call intractable physics, so very complicated physics. So we humans are very smart. But when it comes to pattern recognition, AI can be a little bit smarter. But we're not saying that we are substituting engineers. We are saying that we augment them or enhance in engineers or people in general. Because a lot of companies come here and say, hey, we have AI technologies. We're going to substitute engineers all over the world. That's, I think that's garbage. Because what we see is the biggest, ben biggest benefit is also what Kai Fuli is saying, ex-Google chief officer from, uh, from China. He said the synergy of man and AI or humans and AI, that's actually the biggest benefit. And that's what we see also with our customers. It's not saying that they are now smarter using our, our solution, but they can definitely test way faster. Yeah, I'm strongly with you there. You talk about empowering engineers, and we always talk about domain experts. You know, If the domain expert in the area you talk about that is the engineer, But, but the domain expert is going to be everywhere. I mean, for me, it's my physical doctor is going to be he or she is, uh, is the domain expert and is go also going to be empowered in a very same way and all the other jobs with very, very small um, uh, exceptions only. So I strongly believe in what you do. Nevertheless, of course, we do need, uh, you know, data scientists today. I think we talked about it upstairs before. But what it is that they lack typically is the domain expertise in where they work. We don't want to do data science bashing or something because it's very important. But, but is, that is the big difference that you give the engineer, together with the engineer, a tool by which the engineer who has been studying engineering or worked for 10, 20 years or whatever, that is a different approach, right? Exactly. And maybe you were in my talk a couple of minutes ago and I was talking about this disaster that happened with Audi in 1999, where it's like the, the thing is a designer, for example, designing the spoiler. They know a spoiler has to look cool, the car has to look fancy. But what about the aerodynamics? What about the downforce? Will the car slide or will it get out of control on the highway? So this is a thing an engineer knows and what we actually have built the platform for is especially for engineers and the guys who have built the platform, so my colleagues uh, in London, they're actually engineers from the automotive space, aerospace uh, industry. So they have the knowledge and to actually validate these models, you need engineering knowledge. So when you use the platform as an engineer, you don't need to be a data scientist because the engineer knows what data they're working with. They know the car, they know whatever their device they're working with. And this is what we give them, basically a tool at their fingertips to use AI whenever they want and how much they want. Maybe you can describe for our listeners the process from the beginning until the end you have the, the simulation or you have the model. Maybe you can describe what the listeners has to do. So um, in an engineering simulation process, and I try to come from that area, is you have pre-processing, processing and then post-processing and it works i think the same way in artificial intelligence so pre-processing the most tedious part you clean your data 
And this is all what we have already on the platform. So what you would do is some kind of formatting, some kind of maybe rearrangement of data, fill missing data, for example. What kind of data is it? Most often it can be time series data. So what we see most commonly used is um, data in CSV format, time series data, which we then learn from using AI algorithm, algorithms. So yeah, um, there was the pre-processing part that I just spoke about, then obviously building the models. That's the, that's the interesting part. What models are we choosing? Sometimes people want to jump straight into it. So I want to use the most complex model. Sometimes it's not even necessary. Sometimes you want to do a sanity check. You guide check him? Yes, they're actually a good point. There's actually a thing called guided ML on our platform. So we'll actually give recommendations to our users which model to choose from, which is really, really cool. So Usually what we recommend is start easy and then build up in terms of complexity. That sounds like auto ML kind of thing. Yeah, you yeah know, we the, have yeah, the exactly. same idea or it's in the area of the no code, low code, auto ML. You call it guided ML. So your platform recognizes the stage at which the engineer is maybe or recognizes and suggests maybe if you go left or right, that's where you're going to have the optimum or... Exactly. Yeah. So what they would define in this AutoML, which is actually how we call it as well, so guided ML slash AutoML, so they would define the hyperparameter space, and then the model takes a while using GPU accelerated computing, takes a bit to find the optimal model, and with that we give the engineer the choice. Okay, we recommend go with this model if you want to investigate it further. Okay, we have the model. What's then? Then is basically extracting knowledge from what you see. So what we have is also modules to actually um, interpret the results. For example, let's say we have a baseline model, quote-unquote, and the baseline model, how would that perform compared to a neural network, to a second neural network, and other models that you're using. And there are special modules that actually show you in kind of a plot way, if we take 80% of your data, for example, how good is the error for that data that you're actually testing with. So we guide our users in some way, and then also when it comes to post-processing, we show them and guide them in some way on what steps to take next. So whether that's a design step, whether that's a testing step, and what you would then have is you have the notebook, kind of if people from the audience know Jupyter Lab. It's kind of the same setup. Actually, funny story, the, the first prototype was built in the MATLAB, and then Jupyter Lab, and then it was something that we built ourselves, um, which is very interesting. So, yeah, they extract it, choose the next steps, and then have basically dragging sliders. So from that notebook, they can build a dashboard, what we call a dashboard. And on that dashboard, you can have dragging sliders. So when you drag a slider, this is something what we call a virtual experiment. For example, you change the input parameters, such as, I don't know, angle of attack. For example, when you investigate a spoiler, you would change that input parameter. What it would give you is because it has learned from the past data, from a ton of data, it would give you from that unseen scenario by you changing the input parameter, a new output. The drag value will be, I don't know, a scalar value, which will immediately be shown. So you can actually test in seconds, virtually. This all still sounds like a bottoms-up. I've studied kind of as an engineer, more like you know, designing buildings like this, but it's, it's, it's still like going from, you have something in, in mind, and that's my, where my question is. In the workshop, we talked about this crazy tool like DALL-E, DALL-E, D-A-L-L-E, so you say, you know, I want a whatever, I want a, a cop that is whatever, a rat and something. And then you get these crazy, wonderful, crazy creative images, which is, and my question is like, is that something that you can imagine you're going to use as a combination at some point in time? Because in the end, you want to you design something that, you know, can do something for us in the real world. So maybe can that help an engineer at all or not? Very good question. So DALI is something which I see more in the artist space. So will it actually substitute artists in, in, some, in some way? For engineers, what, more, what we see with Monolith, actually it's used in the real world. 
So another question is, is there, will there be a combination maybe of something like generative adversarial networks, something we know about deep fakes, for example, will there be a combination of deep fakes and engineering data? Maybe, maybe in the future. Um, but what we actually have is something called an autoencoder, which is something from the principles, it's very basic. But when you stack the autoencoder and get into more complex physics, such as, I don't know, designing rims and the AI is designing new rims, new spoilers, this is something where it's get, uh, getting a bit tricky because you generate a new design, but it also has to fulfill the physical requirements or the physical boundaries. So if you're Dali, you generate some, you type in, generate me a car with bi the biggest wheel you can imagine. It's like, maybe it's physically, it doesn't make any sense. It looks fancy. Yeah, but that's my point. My point is, along the lines of empowering the domain expert, I'm completely with you. That is mm -hmm. the way to go. And for that reason, I say, um, instead of having the data scientist, you use the tool exactly the same way. Now you can have a, a designer coming up with crazy ideas and you can say, this cannot work, but, but now you, the engineer, can use DALI. You get crazy ideas and then the tool will take 100 ideas and will tell the engineers, these five are even possible. Forget the other 95 ones. That, that was just a thought, I mean. No, that's a very good thought. And actually, that, this is what we're actually striving for. So let's take again when we talked about uh, the wind tunnel testing in the beginning. Engineers like myself, they are very inquisitive people. I love the wind tunnel, but the problem is it's just too expensive to run uh, at every time. So, for example, when we talk about rim design, you go there as an engineer, you change the rim, and you do that for several models, several rim designs, which is just too expensive. So what we do is we suggest designs by the AI, learn from past CAD data, so CAD data, such as past rim designs, And then we suggest them a new rim. And we say, this is a new rim that the AI has generated for you. And this will be the drag value, the scalar prediction of the drag value. And then the engineer is like, okay, that's cool. So he will exp export that data, for example, or that, uh, the geometry that the AI has to suggested to them. And then work with that. And it's like, this is an interesting design. Let's try that. They go out, take that design. So basically, we are kind of a little bit like <laughs> Dali, exactly. but more realistic for engineers, for the real world. You mentioned uh, Simulink at the beginning. Is it a competitor for you or is it a tool you want to go in, you want to enter? Simulink is a very interesting point because with Simulink, and I've used it in, in my engineering studies, is you have building blocks. And the thing is with these modular tools that you're using, it's very complex to use and you have to have even more domain expert because once you're building the blocks, it's again modeling, a modeling problem, a modeling approach. So you go in there, build some blocks and you have this big Simulink network that you've worked with and then at the end it outputs you something And then good luck finding where the problem is in your big network of Simulink blocks. So this is also very, very um, error-prone, but then also modeling. When we talk about modeling, there's a famous quote from uh, George Box, a famous uh, British statistician, who said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about like the human as a modeler himself or herself, They take Simulink, they build all these boxes, but then they are biased. They go make some assumptions to that model, some simplifications, and then maybe the output that you're getting is not maybe the output you wanted. So this is where we come back to actually real-life testing data. You test, but then actually see um, if you made any mistakes by using something like anomaly detection. You could say, well, the test engineer is not as good. Maybe they measured wrong. You have some drift in your data. But that's where uh, anomaly detection comes in, and you can kind of see, okay, the sensor was maybe wrong, like instead of the Z, direction you measure the y direction something like that you just exactly now i live um, south of munich where airbus uh, is as well and just next door there's a huge uh, simulation so real-time simulation company 
Uh, and I just came by and I saw that they're expanding in a huge way now. Uh, and I assume that there is uh, some kind of wind tunnel in there as well. I think in the past they were doing wings for Airbus, for example, so real-world testing. Can we assume that in the future companies like this one and the other ones concentrating on the testing, that they're going to be you know, doing other things or you know, that we're going to need less uh, real-world testing? This is also a very good point. Um, this goes to the argument of will we never do prototyping again or testing? I think that's just a bold statement. I think it will never happen because we will still need prototypes and real physical right. tests. So what we are actually trying to do is we just try to reduce them. We say we never cut them to zero. That's what we say because it would just be too bold of a statement. You need actually the real world. You need the wind tunnel. You need tunnel. the real world data also. Exactly. Yes, and also how it behaves in the real world because... Nobody would sit in a car and say, yeah, NAI has configured it and has made it for you. Just sit in the plane, relax, lean back. I think nobody would do that, even with a doctor, as you've mentioned earlier on. If someone makes a prediction, AI makes a prediction and gives you the message, you would be like, can I see a doctor, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, that's the topic we talk about. If it is the domain expert, in the hands of the domain expert, with, with you know, the doctor having has his or her experience, can say, this is bullshit, yeah. and feed it back into the system, or say, oh, wow, no, that's good, that's yeah, interesting. Exactly. That's maybe something I can give to my patient or not. Um, yeah, exactly. But as I said, the testing will never be going down to zero. Like real life, testing will never go down to zero. So you have you have one more word on your on your list. It's Onyx. Oh, Onyx, very yeah. good. You can ask it. Yeah. Uh, what what which role Onyx uh, plays for for Monolith? What we have at Monolith is we're not using Onyx. What we're using is actually with our own models. So we always say whatever you see in Monolith, you can also could build yourself. But the thing is, we have a ton of engineering and data science knowledge fed into our platform, and every model is tuned for engineering applications. And that's our main business. So if you go out there and take any package or framework, maybe this is not tuned for engineering applications particularly. So it's also validated for engineering applications. Um, and we, use an, we have an API where users can communicate with. But Onyx in general, we, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. You have a very specific goal towards uh, 2026, if I recall correctly. Exactly. Very good point. Yeah. Until uh, or by 2026, we will empower 100,000 engineers to cut their product development time in half. And that's an ambitious goal, but we're very optimistic and very confident we can achieve this. And um, we've seen it with Jota Racing, for example, winner of the 24-hour race of Le Mans. They have cut their wind tunnel testing times by 80%. And uh, some people say, well, that's a fairy tale, but it's actually true. You can find it in our blog. You can ask the Jota engineers. And they've actually been very proud to work with us in winning the race of Le Mans. And we not only use them for wind tunnel testing, we, they also do tire degradation modeling incredibly complex topic different driver scenarios different tracks for example you say i don't know monza the next day how does my driver need to drive in specific um, corners and all of that which is also very important some of the simulations in the engineering space are doing it in a steady uh, steady state mm -hmm. so it's not transient mm -hmm. so example i say in a steady state how does my car behave at 50 kilometers per hour And that on a constant time level. That would be steady state. But what if I have a complicated thing such as I'm driving from 30 kilometers an hour and I want to accelerate to 80 kilometers an hour and I have to take this corner. Which velocity do I have to take this corner to make sure I'm, can, I can accelerate optimally out of that corner? And this is something which is like a transient example that Jota, for example, uses. Actually, life. So they have a tablet, they open the tablet and because they cannot use, because of the racing regulations, they cannot use sensors 
in the racing, they open the monolith thingy, the data that they have learned from, they just drag a little bit of sliders and say, hey, by the way, racer, do this and this and this. <laughs> and that saves them a few seconds every, every lap, which is super incredible. It sounds too good to be true, but it actually really helped them to actually um, win the 24-hour race of Le Mans, which makes me very proud. Next time you have to invite us, we want to see that. Uh, we want I to definitely. see the, uh, open the notebook and give the driver the, the data. Yeah. Yusuf, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. We wish you good luck with your ambitious goal 2026 and then we talk again. Thank you so much and uh, talk to you later. It was really nice meeting you at the AI Summit 2022 from Siemens. Have a nice day. Yusuf, thank you and good luck. Thanks. <laughs>